But I will say this. He said, you know, I have cousins uh, named Seamus, which is which is refreshing for me because um, uh, when I've met a President Clinton on a couple of times, he always talks about his dog named Seamus. I often get dogs. <laughs> I don't often get cousins. Welcome to Canusa Street, a podcast at the intersection of the issues and policies between Canada and the United States. Here are your hosts, Scotty Greenwood and Chris Sands. All right, welcome back to Canusa Street. I'm Scotty Greenwood from the Canadian American Business Council, and I'm joined by my favorite partner in crime, Chris Sands at the Woodrow Wilson Center. Hey, Chris. Hi, Scotty. So uh, we've got a great podcast yet again. Uh, We are delighted to welcome uh, to Canusa Street Canadian Minister of Labor, the Honorable Seamus O'Regan. And I know you're going to introduce him properly in a a second, Chris, but I I just want to say how excited I am to see the minister. I seem to only see him, you know, like in places like we were in New York at the premiere of Come From Away on Broadway a few years ago, which was amazing. And as a Newfoundlander, I know that uh, the Come From Away show, we can talk about what that was about, um, is really special. So I, I like to see the minister in those kind of circumstances. I was We were going to see him in Washington uh, this week as we record this, and uh, he couldn't travel, but he was able to do a roundtable uh, about uh, work on electric vehicles. But in the middle of the roundtable, Chris, the minister stepped away for a quick vote uh, in the House of Commons in Ottawa, and it was very successful. So maybe you can ask him about that as well. I know uh, he's he's working really hard. So with that, let me turn it over to you to introduce the minister, and then, Minister, we will chit-chat for as long as you'll have us. Excellent. Well, well, Scotty, this is an exciting conversation. Not only is, is Seamus O'Regan the new Minister of Labor, and his mandate letter came out the day that we're recording this, so uh, he's got his marching orders. But he's already achieved one of his marching orders in getting um, 10 days of paid leave approved unanimously in Parliament. So we'll bug him about that. But he's not just a new Minister of Labor. He's a former Minister of Natural Resources. He's a Minister of Indigenous Services and Veterans Affairs and was actually an Associate Minister of National Defense. He comes from um, his riding in St. John's, South Mount Pearl in Newfoundland. Um, And Canadians know him, and I actually can say that I I have been in my pajamas with him uh, because he used to host the CTV morning program, and uh, thankfully it wasn't a two-way screen because you wouldn't like my, my pajamas minister, but he um, he's a wonderful person. He spent time studying politics at St. Francis Xavier University, but also studied at University College Dublin. He studied at INSEAD near Paris and has a Master of Philosophy degree from the University of Cambridge in England. So a worldly person, a, a great portfolio of politics. Really glad to have you, Minister. Welcome. Thank you very much, Chris. Although, you know, you got to be careful with all this talk about me and you meeting in your pajamas. I'm a married man. Uh, my husband is going to be watching this with some chagrin. <laughs> we don't want to start any rumors. I did morning television for uh, for, for 10 years and uh, more or less how I think, yeah, I know you both in some respect. Um, and I love that a great deal, although I will be the first to say that uh, having, you know, the, knowing the correct questions to ask is altogether different. And providing answers, especially when you're a politician. But anyway, I do my best. And Minister, you started in in the media business as a ten year old. I think I read um, when you were a little kid. Is that is that a, is that a, a fiction on Wikipedia or is that real? Uh, it's real. It's real. Yeah, yeah. I was doing. I did radio plays for CBC in Newfoundland. And uh, anyway, there was a, a national 
morning show, radio morning show, uh, current affairs for young people called anybody home. And they asked me to participate in that. I thought it was crazy because it, it aired the same time as Saturday morning cartoons. I mean, we're talking about the seventies and eighties here. Like <laughs> who would be listening to this? But I did it because it paid well. Uh-huh. And I became a young, a member of the actor union at a very young age. Wow. So maybe that portended to my present role as well. I don't know. Well, maybe, but uh, so Chris, I just have one other question as we start up here. Minister, what made you make the jump then from media? Cause you, you got to be very famous in Canada and a, and a acclaimed. Very famous in Canada is kind of a very qualified statement. <laughs> well, you know, um, but but then you jumped into politics. So what made you make that jump? I've never, I mean, maybe that's well known to others, but I've actually never asked you that. Well, it was, it's actually kind of what made me jump into media because uh, when I was, so when I was 21, I was executive assistant to the Minister of Justice in Newfoundland, Labrador, the uh, uh, and, and so I, I worked three years with him. Then I went away to Dublin to to study what Newfoundland could learn from the Celtic Tiger in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then came back and I was two years then senior policy advisor to the premier of Newfoundland in Labrador. Um, so it was it, and then went away to, to Cambridge and, and studied uh, actually studied uh, indigenous participation and in natural resource development. Um, so. It was more like, how did I leave politics, even though I was a staffer, not an elected official at Diet Mail, and go into media? And I will just briefly tell you that, because it's a good story. Uh, I I was uh, had a master's in philosophy degree, um, which meant, naturally, I was uh, living in my parents' basement uh, <laughs> after my graduation uh, with my auspicious degree. And uh, uh, my brother, who uh, served in the military, he re- just retired recently as lieutenant commander in the Navy, but at the time, he wanted to fly from Dubai, where he was stationed, to go to Halifax in uh, in Nova Scotia. Obviously, he's going to stop over at our family home in St. John's and take pick up his jeep from the family home and drive it all the way across the island to Halifax. My mother implored me, said, "For God's sake, we need somebody to go on Moose Watch in Newfoundland. This is a serious business. It, uh, <laughs> we have a number of accidents that happen and." Uh, from moose and people hitting moose, moose straying on the highway in front of. So you need somebody who's on moose watch. Um, so I was going to go. Um, I got a call from an old friend of mine, and she uh, was working for CTV, which is the big private broadcaster in Canada. And they were starting a new channel and a new show where they were looking for people who were just going to talk endlessly for like six hours a day about current affairs. And she said, we think you'd be perfect. Um, <laughs> they asked me to go to Halifax. I said, are you going to pay my way? They said, no. So I said, forget it. Uh, then I said, well, you know, I happen to be going to Halifax because I got to go on Moose Watch with my brother. And uh, so I appeared in front of some cameras. This is a pre-internet. So, well, you know, they they put it on a DVD and couriered that to Toronto. And the executives there saw it and said, hey, we'd love for you to come. I want you to pay my way. They said, yes. So I thought, hey, free trip to Toronto. Went and they said, uh, we'd like to have you on. And uh, anyway, I, my brother, years later, when everybody was making a big fuss because the Canada M kind of famous in Canada guy was at his wedding, he stood up and he said, you know, if it wasn't for me and the moose, none of this would have happened. He was, yeah. If it wasn't for him and the moose, none of it would have happened. So that might be one of the I most enjoyed Canadian... 15 years on, on national television as a result and loved every minute of it. It was an mm. unbelievable experience. And uh, prided myself on learning a heck of a lot and pride myself to this day on being a journalist. Uh, it was... Um, you know, it was, it was marvelous and it was thank goodness for him and the moose. Yeah. 
It's a very Canadian story. I was just saying that. I mean, it's one of the most Canadian stories. It doesn't even seem real. But anyway, you left journalism and got into politics. So so maybe I should turn it over to Professor Sands to ask, a, you know, like a proper, serious political co- or policy It's question. only relevant if it involves Canadian wildlife, Professor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I guess it's wildlife. I, you're Minister of Labor. And, you know, it, it's one of those jobs that people think about you know, maybe this is the future of the workforce. Maybe it's um, it's something like that. But there's a minister for workforce development separate from minister of labor. So how how is your remit? We've, we've got the mandate letter, but what what is it that the labor ministry at the federal level does? And and I know that's a very basic question, but just to understand what it is you're you're doing in the government of Canada uh, for our listeners. Yeah, uh, well, the, the ministry of labor is actually one of our oldest ministries, and. Um, uh, you know, it deals specifically right now with organized labor, particularly. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we're a government that took our relationship with organized labor extremely seriously because, you know, we honed in on, on the middle class and those working hard to join it uh, in much the same way as, you know, you look at Presidents Clinton, for instance, or President Obama and, you know, currently President Biden. You know, there there is, you know, you want to hone in on that group, um, not only because I think it's the right thing to do, because the majority of Americans, Canadians occupy you know, that kind of fairly elusive demographic, but but also because it's it, it, you hit the most number of people when you affect the middle class and therefore it's good for an economy. Um, organized labor, we've really identified as as being key. Uh, and, and I think, you know, what you're seeing, and I think President Biden was wise, but even, you know, you look at people on the on kind of the different side of the political spectrum in our country. And I'm thinking particularly of Premier Ford in Ontario of the of the Progressive Conservative Party. They have been honing in on organized labor. Um, it, if if you can, you know, make sure that people have the right working conditions. If you can make sure that they are paid a reasonable wage and they have the right benefits, they will contribute to the economy. They will drive an economy. Um, so that you know that has been uh, a particular part of my remit. One other thing that you may have noticed in my mandate letter too, Christopher, is is on uh, what we call just transition. Um, you guys call it the same, and I think there are many of us who fr- hate the phrase equally. <laughs> it's just, it doesn't resonate with people, it, and it's so. And I, I, I say that because, you know, I, I say it because we know what we're talking about. We're talking about energy workers and kind of a displacement that's happening in the market as we look at lowering emissions and building up renewables. Um, but it just it, it makes so many people who work in the energy sector so anxious because it just seems like this grand sweeping thing. And, and in fact, it's just it's about retooling to the next job. Um, if we have workers who are working in oil and gas, working in hydrogen or even, you know, like one head of the crane operators union in Alberta told me, like, if I'm if my guys are lifting a wind turbine or lifting a pipeline, whatever, we just got to make sure that those good jobs remain, uh, that they, you know, more often than not are union jobs and, and that we retool them properly to the next thing. So to answer your question, yeah, I mean, we work more broadly on this. I mean, I, you know, this is this is going to be something that's going to involve a whole load of ministries. If you you could also see in my mandate letter, and I I co-lead it with uh, with the Minister of Natural Resources. Um, there are some things that you know envelop the entire government. I would say this is one of them on the economic side, and and you know, if you look at mandate letters, reconciliation is something of Indigenous people or with Indigenous people is something that uh, we we have you know is kind of a whole of government thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, we've, we're a good group. I mean, I've seen a lot of governments and, you know, either the staff level or whatever been involved with a lot of governments. Uh, this is a really good group of people. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, we respect each other's turf, but also know where we can work properly together. So labor, you know, my uh, 
my my tentacles, you know, are, are throughout many different uh, jurisdictions, as are others in mine. So, you know, I'm just all that to say that we work. I'm not a myopic guy. Um, you know, I'm a results oriented guy, and wherever I can work with other people, uh, that's really. So let me, yeah, let me follow up on that. Thank you for that. Mandate letter is a Canadian thing. Americans, cabinet members don't, I don't think get mandate letters or it's not a, it's not a hotly anticipated day in the news here. Uh, but I do know, Minister, that you uh, met just uh, recently, maybe in this past week as we're recording this with your U.S. counterpart uh, who uh, at Canadian American Business Council, we were happy to have him participate in our state of the relationship. Um, but if you're not from Boston, he's a little hard to understand. Marty Walsh, the former mayor. So uh, how how was your conversation with him? What do you, is there collaboration between the two of you or was it just a courtesy call? Like how do you, how do you see Canada-U.S. collaboration on your portfolio? Or your well, mandate. Step back and I'll share another story. Okay, so just to, when you talk about Marty's accent, I mean, you know, he's got a fairly thick Boston brogue. Um, but I have a Newfoundland accent. Now, I don't always have it. It's my real accent, I call it. Um, but when I grew up in Labrador uh, at a base there, which was occupied with, you know, Americans and Canadians, uh, you know, from mainland Canada and, uh, and Dutch and Germans and Brits and they were, you know, all these air forces. My mother taught us then, speak slowly for the mainlanders. So <laughs> I learned this kind of other way that I'm talking with you now that paid off very well getting into Canadian morning television. So when Marty speaks in his Boston accent, I just speak in my Newfoundland accent and we both understand each other very well. We both, uh, I'm probably, my accent's faster and more of a Waterford, Wexford lilt. So I think the Boston thing is, is is its own thing, but I understand it perfectly. You're, you're going to have to give us a little of it. Let's, <laughs> let's... You can't put it on. You can't put it on. It's it's there. It's not there. What can I tell you? Uh, but I will say this. He said, you know, I have cousins uh, named Seamus, which is which is refreshing for me because um, uh, when I've met a President Clinton on a couple of times, he always talks about his dog named Seamus. I often get dogs. <laughs> I don't often get cousins. So Marty and I hit it off very well. Um, he, you know, he also wanted to talk a lot about hockey. Unfortunately, we both like the same team. Uh, well, I don't know if he likes them. He's a Boston fan, but he, he knows Montreal well, Montreal Canadian. So, uh, I frankly exhausted my knowledge on that. Um, and, but we, we spoke about that, you know, looking forward to seeing him, told him I'd love to have him up in, 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 uh, in Newfoundland particularly. And, uh, and, you know, it's unfortunate. We, we were meant to be uh, in D.C. I was greatly looking forward to meeting with him. I think one of the things about post-COVID uh, or, not, or living with COVID, actually more to the point, is just how much you love seeing people. Like, I was looking forward to seeing you, Scotty, again, no question. Yeah. And, you know, anyway, we had to, with Omicron, we just, we've had to batten down the hatches again. Um, looking, you know, I, I'm hoping in Q1 to get back uh, and, and do it live again and, and looking forward to seeing him down there. Um, you know, you, you, you miss that. And it, and it is, I think, an integral part of diplomacy. I mean, I'm very grateful for this. Um, and, you know, in my two years as natural resources minister, almost all of it was spent on Zoom. Um, yeah. Frustrating, because when I started, you know, my previous positions, Christopher lined up Veterans Affairs. <laughs> I visited every Legion <laughs> Hall in Canada. Indigenous services just, you know, hit as many First Nations and many rural and remote parts of this uh, country as I could. That's where I grew up, so I had to do it. And then when I took natural resources, they were like, well, you're going to have to go to all these conferences now in Vienna, Santiago, and Paris. And I was thinking, God, God, that's great. And uh, well, COVID meant I did it all, you know, from my home in Newfoundland, Uh, you know, like, but, but grateful for this. But I think, I think it's an integral part of our relationship and of diplomacy. And I think no matter what your line of work, 
to see people in the flesh and, and to, to shake their hands and, and to talk to them. You can't beat it. So I think that's that will be this has maintained our relationship. And I think but I, I'm looking forward to getting back down. Well, yeah. And one of the most magical experiences and memorable experiences of my um, professional life, actually, traveling in Canada, I've been all throughout Canada, but was in Newfoundland um, in the summer where we saw an iceberg floating by and it actually tipped over and it was green. You could hear the sound and we saw it and it was green, you know, until the seawater drained. And so if, if we can, if you can replicate that and invite, uh, you know, organize it so that your counterparts uh, are present uh, for an iceberg tipping over that, I mean, it says a lot about climate change, but it also is just a magical um experience of nature anyway and Chris, was, I I reception in which was in, in newfoundland we had and we had a beach party on the final day of our three-day anyway because we had a lot of people who came in from all over the world i really wanted to show off newfoundland and the final night at the beach party i screamed out release the whales some people <laughs> looked at me like i was serious and I was like, <laughs> you know <laughs> we don't keep them on a harness and you know cue the cue the approach but um you were lucky because, yeah, icebergs flipping. Basically, what they say about icebergs is true. 80, 90 percent is underwater, but eventually the salt erodes it and, and then it reaches literally that tipping point and it flips over. It, it Not many people get to see it. I've only seen it a couple of times myself and I live there. So, yeah, it's 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 magical. And I got to tell you, it was wasted. I was standing there with my boss at the time, Ambassador Giffen, and it was the most romantic, magical experience. And I'm standing there with, you know, with the dude I work for. So that was no good. Anyway, Chris, bring us bring us back to reality here, my friend. Well, I don't know if it's reality. I'm, I'm enjoying your world here for a minute. Um, but I but I did have a somewhat serious question, because you know, a lot of times with with labor, it's certainly U.S. Department of Labor, work, what we think of is, is workplace safety. And whether it was the miners a generation ago to auto plants, so on, a lot of our, a lot of our workplace safety issues, a lot of our organized labor, I, I should say, the, the labor unions made a real difference in making work less deadly. And I think that was a really important step. But now we're dealing with COVID and the pandemic, and you mentioned Omicron, and how does from your vantage point, how can Canada uh, address the change in the labor market? The idea that, you know, some people, usually white collar people like me, I know, uh, can telework, but not everybody can telework. So we've got first responders, we've got others, people taking real risks to do their jobs. And I, I wonder, you know, what can government do to try to mitigate that, to try to take care of people? Because you shouldn't lose your life just to, to earn a living. And, and and you shouldn't have to choose between buying your groceries, paying your rent, paying your mortgage, and 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 you know, taking time off when you think you may be yeah, symptomatic. Uh, so you know, to your point and what we talked about at the beginning, I think 10, 10 days of, of paid leave uh, is a, is a big help. I got a lot of work to do with my provincial colleagues and territorial colleagues in Canada because the ninety four percent of of it is under their jurisdiction. So we got a lot of work to do. Uh, we need to do it fairly quickly because you know if there's not a you know if there's not another variant then there will probably be another pandemic, and uh, we want to make sure that we're well equipped for it. Um, and you know we've learned this. Uh, if we can keep people from going to work uh, when they feel that they may have symptoms, that is going to be a big help. So that, you know that's one of those things. I would argue too that there are other kind of other things that we have learned outside of the pandemic. I think one part of my remit is is dealing with mental health. And, and, you know, making that an integral part of, of being able to take time off, but also, you know, occupational health and safety, the mental health be part of that. That will be, I'm before, you know, when I was uh, in media and when I was a journalist, 
I was an ambassador for a big campaign that one of our big major telecom companies has here, Bell, uh, called Bell Let's Talk. I was an ambassador for Bell Let's Talk. And I'm, I'm somebody who has suffered through depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. And uh, so it's a big passion of mine. And, um, you know, that will, that will occupy some of my time. Uh, we have our first minister dedicated to mental health uh, as a result of this new government. Um, that's Dr. Carolyn Bennett, who's also a former minister of, of public health, but more recently, you know, spent basically the past six years as minister of Crown Indigenous Relations. Carolyn's a dear friend, uh, so I'll be working closely with her on that, too. Well, that's, that's impressive, and, uh, and good luck to you on it, because it is really important work. But you did mention the provinces, and just as a, as a follow-up, you know, the... The way it always seems to go in Canada, you have a federal government of one stripe, and then you tend to have provincial governments of the other stripe. I think voters sometimes split things up. Um, as we come out of COVID, what what would you say the state of you know federal-provincial relations are? And if you could affect one thing and get the provinces on board with with one thing, what would you what would you prioritize? There's so much to do these days. Yeah, I, I think you know not to belabor it, uh, but I think you know, <laughs> ten days of. Uh, 10 days of paid sick leave is probably going to be one of my first uh, things to discuss with them um, and, and working out arrangements with them on that. But I mean, there is a host of other things. I, I, I like hitting the road and I was really eager to do that because I could do that after I was, mm-hmm. uh, after I was brought in within days, I was um, within two days, I was meeting with my Ontario colleague, uh, Marty McNaughton, and to your point, oh, right. a, a progressive conservative uh, minister. Um, he, uh, he texted me the night I was sworn in and, um, you know, and I, I will say that two years previous when I was Minister of Natural Resources and we were, uh, the Liberal Party of Canada was shut out of Alberta and and, uh, and Saskatchewan. I received a text that night from the Minister of Energy from Alberta saying, when will you come? And I said, how's tomorrow? And, uh, you know, flew out there and she and I still have a very, very, a very tight relationship. You know, saw each other through, uh, you know, the dual crises of uh, a pandemic. On our energy resources, again, you know, Canada being the fourth largest oil producer in the world, uh, U.S. being number one, um, and and also an oil price war that shocked both Americans. So, you know, we saw each other through quite a bit. I work very hard, um, you know, to, to to work with my colleagues. And I don't care what political strength that they are. Uh, you know, I say to them uh, when I campaign, I am a total partisan, a rabid partisan. Um, but when I'm in a position where I'm governing. Uh, so I'm fortunate enough to be in this position. It, it, you're working for our common constituents and for the good of the country, and I mean that I really do. And uh, and I think I've you know gotten some credibility on that. Um, so I, I work that in, in natural resources. Uh, I will you know I'm working that in labor, and uh, you know met with my Alberta colleagues as well, Tyler Chandro, and you know regardless of stripe. So I think that there are some things that we will definitely be working on together. Some things that. Uh, you know, that are of interest to them, like labor mobility, uh, that I'm really interested in working on. You know, we have a, uh, our federations are somewhat different. There's, you know, I, I think that we are a little more decentralized than yours. And so a lot, you know, a lot of power does reside, particularly on, particularly on domestic matters with provinces and territories. So it's incumbent if you're going to show national leadership that we, that we do that. And I think in an increasingly globalized world, uh, we're still a population of California. So, like, you you know, while you have to respect jurisdictions as our, as uh, the Fathers of Confederation wrote it, uh, it is the 21st century. And, you, you know, where you can coordinate and work together, uh, you know, you got to do that because uh, our partners are and our competitors uh, are, are very good at doing that. And, uh, you know, we got to be united. Fantastic. Wonderful. Scotty? Well, I can I can vouch. I know we're wrapping up here, Minister, and we're so grateful to you. I, I are you can... serious? 
Well, I mean, it's your time. Time right? flies when you're having fun, dude. We can talk all all day long if you want. I can vouch for your for your um, for your nonpartisan approach in governing and and federal provincial because behind your back, uh, the province of Alberta has a former colleague of yours, James Rajat, who's now the Alberta rep- former federal member of Parliament, now the Alberta representative in D.C. I've worked a lot with him. Chris has worked some with him too, and. Um, and James sings your praises. And, you know, I'm sure his his uh, Irish ancestors call him Seamus. So you guys are bro- brothers from another mother. But but James is English for Seamus. That's how it goes. Exactly right. And I have to say, you know, being in Washington, D.C., you know, your, your admonition to fight as hard as you can on the campaign trail, but then work for the common good once you're governing is something that... Uh, resonates with me, and I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe in your next life, you'll come down in Washington and help uh, help our policymakers understand that that kind of approach because it's 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 pretty fractured here. It's uh, it's yeah. pretty rough and tumble. And you know, one. Let me just have you react to this for a second. One of the one of the things that has been smart that Canada uh, does, and that the Prime Minister and the team have um, really stepped up here in recent weeks, is not only engaging with counterparts uh, in the White House. You know, it's not just about the leader to leader, but also talking to Congress because President Biden can't just do a deal with any world leader. He's also got to work things through Congress. Um, So I know that the government of Canada has spent a fair amount of time here lately because I see you guys all the time uh, (laughs) talking to Congress. So I wonder if you want to spend a moment that a big issue is electric vehicle tax credit. I wonder just as we get to the end and again, we'll we'll talk as long as you want to hang out with us on Canusa Street. Minister, but if you want to talk a little bit about that outreach, because I know you and your colleagues uh, are focused on that, not just with the White House, but with Congress. Yeah. Um, You know, the idea of a a 34% tax credit on, you know, all American made electric vehicles uh, is, it is uh, incredibly destructive to the auto pact. Uh, It is the equivalent, you know, let's not parse words here. It's the equivalent of a 34% tariff. And and let's also be clear about something else. There is no such thing as an all-American-made car. And there is no such thing as an all-Canadian-made car. It's roughly, it's actually almost parity. It's 50%, 50%. Just because, you know, you have automotive parts and partially assembled vehicles that can six, seven, eight, nine times cross the border. It is an integrated market. It's worked well. We are, you know, it's happened that way uh, because on both sides of the border, we have competitive advantages in particular areas that come together to make a car. <laughs> and together, we got to compete against Germans, Japanese, Koreans, uh, you know, global competitors, Brazilian. Um, and, and this is how we've done it. And, and this auto pact has served both of our countries very well with a lot of excellent, highly paid uh, union jobs on both sides of the border. So, uh, you know, I, I get that, uh, you know, as you know, and this is the point about just transition and everything else. We need to make sure that workers are on side because workers are the ones who make the cars, the electric vehicles. Workers are going to be the ones to lower emissions and build up renewables. This isn't a matter of will workers be at the table. I'll say to you, here. you are it. I mean, you know, we're just trying to enable you. Who, do, who the heck do you think is going to do this work? This is all <laughs> complex stuff. Um, so I get in order to bring that constituency over, you know, and this, and I applaud this administration for, for focusing on organized labor, as are we, which, you know, makes this all the more tragic that we would even be talking about differences on this. Um, 
but you you can't allow Canadian labor to be collateral damage. Like I, I can't have it, and uh, we will retaliate in kind. I yeah, I don't think it's going to come. That is that. just uh, foolishness. I think if when you think about how aligned these governments are on organized labor and on our commitment to combating climate change in real and tangible ways. I mean, we've already said that we will not have, you know, any manufactured internal internal combustion engine cars in Canada in 2030. I mean, that's this is this is huge. That's why this is pressing and that's why we got to get it right now and that's why we are serious when we say we will retaliate because like we but but again, all the more tragic. I I am really hopeful that that does not happen. Um, you know, we got to do what we got to do, but you know, we are so aligned on this that, uh, you know, I'm really hopeful and I, you know, confident that we will find. I think so too, Minister. I think, uh, I think that's very well said. We hear your passion and your, and your, um, seriousness about this. And, uh, I, I think this thing is going to get resolved. Luckily, we, and by the time people hear this, maybe. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> be, be our version of the mandate letter. By the time people hear it, the problem will be solved. That's, in which case, I am going to be on this show every week. <laughs> there, we, <laughs> there heck, why not? You know, we don't need any other guests, Sands. We, we got, we got Minister Reagan. Well, listen, let me, let me just say thank you. It's, 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 it's pretty great for me to be able to see you twice in two days, Minister, and talk to you. And, and I hope we can continue it. And uh, Chris, it's always good to, uh, to get together with you and have these important conversations. Well, and I feel it's really exciting to talk to the minister when I'm wearing, you know, professional clothes, not just my pajamas. So this is exciting. And go see Come From Away. And if you've already seen it, see it again, because it is fantastic. I mean, that night that I saw Scotty, the Prime Minister and uh, and Sophie had invited, I think, all the UN ambassadors to go see it, and uh, it, it speaks volumes about our relationship. Uh, you know, uh, during a really pivotal time in, in American history and world history, uh, what happened in Gander, Newfoundland. I mean, yes. set to music. I never in my life thought that they could make a musical about 9/11 and what happened in Gander, Newfoundland, but they did. And boy, I tell you, people come out of it. Dancing, crying, laughing—it's it's the stuff of genius. And That's exactly right. And 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 actually, uh, I think Chris, you might have been there this summer in Washington on the anniversary yeah. of nine eleven, uh, late Indian late summer. Um, there was well, Chris, you descri- you described what happened at the Lincoln Memorial because maybe we'll get the minister to come back for that. Oh, that was great. They did a. Um they did a version of the entire musical on the steps of the, of the Lincoln Memorial. So people could gather safely outside, sit down the grass in a blanket and, and listen to the songs and the stories. And there were some screens to make some of the, the actor, uh, singer actors uh, more visible. And it was almost like a radio play. You might, uh, your 10 year old self might've enjoyed this because they, uh, they didn't have all the staging and the, the sets. So they, they worked it almost as a reading and a, or, but it was really, powerful and to be in that spot and the uh, Reagan Airport not named after you, um, you is nearby yeah extra in there the uh, the the planes would go by overhead and you're thinking 911 and then you watch these planes in the sky it was just such a moving moment and you're right I think it tells a great story about our people but 
also tells you something about how nice and decent and fair-minded the people of Newfoundland are, and you certainly fit in that category as far as I can tell. Well, and Ambassador, Ambassador Hillman that night addressed the crowd. It was like a free concert on the mall in Washington. It was brilliant. And and she addressed a crowd of thousands and thousands of people, and no other Canadian ambassador in Washington has been able to get that many people to focus on Canada-U.S. So it was a, it was a beautiful moment, and uh, and I, I, I would like it to become an annual event, actually. Um, That should be something that people in Washington look forward to. They bring their families, and maybe we can bring half of Newfoundland down to to, uh, celebrate with us, Minister. Mm -hmm. 250,000 Newfoundlanders and Labradorians. Buckle up, Washington. (laughs) (laughs) We're ready. And I look forward to it next time. look forward to seeing you in person. You're always welcome here, too. Thank you so much. This podcast is brought to you by the Canadian American Business Council and the Wilson Center. If you like this episode, help others find our show and give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify.